0: Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city And appeared to many, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. Among them were Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph's, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. According to the Bible, there were several supernatural signs that surrounded the death of Jesus. You'll remember from a few weeks back, that first supernatural sign was darkness that swallowed light in midday from noon, if you will, to three o'clock in the afternoon in verse 45. Remember it says, now from the sixth hour, that's about noon, until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. Now Matthew's going to add three more miracles supernatural signs, the tearing of the temple veil at the beginning of verse 51, a massive earthquake at the end of verse 51, a supernatural resurrection from the dead, the point, these things couldn't go unnoticed these events couldn't happen and you pretend like that they didn't happen the death of jesus was of supreme significance and as we've been opening up our bible and trying to understand at least in part, the supremacy of that significance, we begin to understand a little bit more and a little bit more. Matthew records the reaction of the centurion and the guards and the presence of certain women in verses 54 through 56. So we go from the temple to the terrain to the tombs. Look at the supernatural tear in the temple curtain. Look at verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil of the temple was a massive curtain that separated two rooms in the temple. There was a place called the holy place And then there was another place called the Most Holy Place. In the Old Testament, God gave detailed instructions concerning the tabernacle in the wilderness, how it was to look, how it was to be constructed, what its furniture was supposed to be on the inside, and also this curtain. The temple in Jerusalem was the place where you could worship God. It was preceded by a thing called the tabernacle in the wilderness. And the tabernacle in the wilderness becomes a type and a picture of our own Lord Jesus. That you come to God in Christ in order to worship him. Now it was a shadow, a copy of the picture of Jesus Now again, only the high priest could go into the holiest place. And then only once a year and offer, if you will, the blood of the sacrifice. It was in this most holy place where the glory of God appeared according to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 7. So the curtain or the veil separated the holiness of God from the sinfulness of man. And the Holy of Holies was a place that was set aside for the presence of God and for the glory of God. This veil serves as a symbol of that which both protected the holiness and the glory of God, but also the reality that outside of this veil there were a group of people who were sinners. Now, how massive was this curtain? Scholars report that the curtain was 60 or more feet high. Josephus gives a description that's been preserved for us in his wars. It, it says in Josephus's wars, quote, Before these doors, there was a massive door, and before these doors, there was a veil of equal largeness with the doors. It was embroidered with blue and fine linen and scarlet and purple and of a contexture that was truly wonderful. This mixture of colors had It's mystical interpretation, according to Josephus, and according to many of the Jews at the time. But it was a kind of an image of the universe, according to Josephus. He says, for the scarlet, there seemed to be signified fire by the fine flax, the earth by the blue, the air, by the purple, the sea. These were the four elements in the ancient world that sort of mystically signified the reality of all things. Josephus writes, quote, this curtain had also embroidered upon it all that was mystical and in the heavens. So you can imagine in the embroidery, there was probably a faint image of the sun, the moon, the stars, the celestial uh, circumstances as they would watch these lights travel throughout the sky. And the writer of Hebrews interpreted this veil as a type and a picture of the body of our Lord Jesus. And there's a clue that's been given to us in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, where it says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest house. By the blood of Jesus. In verse 20 of chapter 10, by a new and a living way. The contrast is the old way was by blood offered in the temple once a year by a priest. But there's a new and a living way which he consecrated for us. Through the veil that is his flesh. The writer of Hebrews sees in the cross of Jesus, the tearing, if you will, of the flesh of Jesus, just like the tearing of the veil. So the writer of Hebrews goes and declares that we have a high priest over the house of God, that's the church, and encourages the reader, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." The writer of Hebrews is giving us this, this amazing picture. You may not have grown up in a world of religion and ritual. I know that some of you did, like me. I grew up in a world of religion and ritual. There was a sacrifice of the mass. There was the ritual of confession. There were There was a priesthood. Now we discover something that Jesus is a new and living way. There is no other sacrifice, there is no other priesthood. When I was a young man, I don't normally like to do this, but in the seventh grade, I got picked up for shoplifting. They took me to jail. They took this seventh grader, they put me in the squad car, they took me to the jail, and they locked me in the jail. It was a great, great moment in my life. Have you ever had moments in your life where you knew, this is a come to Jesus moment. (laughs) This is a moment where I have to decide what kind of a life I'm going to have and what kind of a future's in front of me. In the seventh grade, After they released me and released me to my parents, I begged my parents to take me to church. I begged them to take me to the Catholic Church. I begged them to let me go to confession. I needed to be able to confess my sin because God was absent. He was not present in my life. I needed to figure out a way. How can I talk to God? How can I speak to him? How can I get his attention? How can I tell him what's going on inside of my broken life? In this particular passage, we discover something that it isn't through priests, and it isn't through ritual, and it isn't through confession, that we have access to God, but we have access in a new, in a living way. John Piper puts it this way, quote, but now because of Christ, we may come near and feast our hearts on the fullness of the flaming beauty of God's holiness. He will not be dishonored. We will not Be consumed because of the all protecting Christ, God will be honored and we will stand in everlasting awe. Therefore, do not fear to come, but come through Christ. Now, here's what you have to understand something. When the veil of the temple was torn in two, did God cease to be holy? No, he he remained holy. Did human beings cease to be sinners? They remained sinners. But God was sending a message. We can, by the body of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus, enter into the presence of God, worship God, pray to God. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he's our peace who has made both one. He has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in the flesh, his flesh, the flesh of Jesus, the enmity, even the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances for to make in himself of twain. That means two, one new man, so making peace. We can come to God. But I need to be very careful here. We can come to God, but we still have to come to God on God's terms. And there's the rub. Human beings sometimes want to come to God, but they want to come on their own terms. Fallen man doesn't always recognize the holiness of God or the utter sinfulness of human beings. They imagine they can approach God mentally or ceremonially or sincerely, and that will suffice. Fallen man insists on access to God apart from Christ. But there is no other access. In our tour in Israel, I remember listening to the guide who was telling us about some of the Jewish perceptions that when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, that this place, this holy place where the glory of God and the presence of God used to be at the destruction of the temple, that the presence of God, the holiness of God, the mystery of God, if you will, moved from that place and into the wall. And I thought, how absurd. How stupid. How misguided. You know, it's, it's very awkward to tell your guide, you couldn't be more wrong. <laughs> that the presence of God had left a whole generation before that. When invisible hands tore the heavy curtain from top to bottom as easily as a child tears a piece of tissue paper in half. Again, I want you to think about this. Imagine what you're reading and, and you see it for what it is. Invisible hands, like the time of Daniel, who penetrates this reality and writes on the wall, meeny, meeny, tackle, you farson, you've been weighed in the balance and you've been found wanting. Now invisible hands come from another dimension and tear this massive curtain in half. Who do you suppose tore the curtain? Well, here's our options: Satan tore the curtain? An invisible, powerful angel tore the curtain. God himself tore the curtain. Now, Again, I want you to just reflect on that for just a moment. Because if God himself is tearing the curtain, there's two things that I want you to think about. The first thing is, as he's tearing the curtain, it is an invitation to come in part. But there's another issue. And I think it's the issue that the holiness of God and the presence of God and the glory of God is departing. He's not there. You can't access the presence of God in the holy place, in the temple. There's something even a little bit more astonishing than even the tearing of the temple, curtain. And that is... The wicked idea to sew the curtain and put it back in its place. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Imagine you are the religious leaders. You're the priests serving in the temple. You feel the earthquake. You see the some of them them possibly with their own eyes see this curtain tear from the top to the bottom. Who in their right mind thinks that it's a good idea to sew the curtain back up, to sew it back up and say, okay, okay, time out everybody. We know that the curtain's torn, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to put The presence of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God. We're going to put it back in the holy of holies. We're going to re-erect the curtain and we're going to do what we used to do. And that's the challenge that we face, isn't it? Imagine you grow up in a religious tradition where you were always taught that the way you get to God is in this particular way or that particular way. And now you're all of a sudden confronted with the reality that the only acceptance way to come to God on his terms is through the person of Jesus. The tearing of the curtain must in part mean that God has spoken. He said something about and communicated something about his own will. The Jewish sacrificial system and the temple sacrificial system, acceptable or unacceptable? It has to be unacceptable. Unacceptable. God's holiness doesn't dwell either on the temple mount or in the wall or behind the curtain. God's unique and holy presence left the temple. And we can only have access to the holiness of God and the presence of God through the person of Jesus Christ the Lord. And some of you may have been wondering, I'm I'm wondering if I should go back to the traditions in which I grew up with. And and, and I'm not here to tell you about what you should or you shouldn't do. But this is something that I struggled with. Maybe you grew up in a world like I grew up in. I was born a Catholic. I'm raised a Catholic. I'm going to die a Catholic. I was born a Jew, raised a Jew. I'm going to die a Jew. I was born an Anglican, raised an Anglican. I'm going to die an Anglican. Whatever it is that you are, or whatever you used to be, there's only one way to access God. It's through the Lord Jesus. There's a seismic tear in the curtain, but there's also a seismic tear on the earth. Look at the end of the verse. It says, and the earth quaked. The rocks were split. The earthquake must have been terrifying. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake. Again, much of my life was spent in Southern California. And on more than one occasion, I've experienced these earthquakes. And I've never been in the midst of an earthquake where I saw the ground liquefy before me and rocks were split open. But it is a scary circumstance. Matthew says rocks were split So, this seems to be an earthquake of, I know it sounds, it's a pun, seismic proportions. Some have suggested that this is symbolism, that this is the weight of the sin being placed on the Savior's shoulder. It creates this cosmic tremor on the planet Earth. Others have suggested that the Earth might have quaked and torn to symbolize this fatal blow that's been delivered to Satan and Satan's rule. Jesus had warned in John chapter 12 verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of the world be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to myself. Others have suggested that the earth itself trembled in anticipation of the coming day of redemption, the earth began to shake and the earth itself, this planet that we're living on, shakes in anticipation that it is now going to have to submit to the will of God and the plan of God and the God and the future that God has ordained. Again, Paul hints at it in Romans 8:21, because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The children of God have been given liberty in Jesus and now the earth in anticipation of the new liberty that's about to come begins to tr- shake and tremble tremble. But there was another thing that I thought about. You'll remember in Exodus chapter 19 when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he receives the law at the hand of God. As Moses receives the law, the earth trembles and the earth shakes. My friend John Corson suggests that the giving of the law at that moment was meant to shake people up. God gives the law and God spells out his requirements for holiness. He spells out what it means to have a right relationship with him and what it means to have a right relationship with each other. And then Paul wisely says that even in the revelation of the law, here's what we discover ultimately, that we're lawbreakers. That what the law reveals when it says you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then you try doing it for even one day. I'm going to love you with all my heart, with all my might, with all my soul. Moms can do it, I think, for a whole day, sometimes for their children. But even then, it's tough, isn't it? You look at that child and you go, I know I love you but you're testing my patience. We know that we're supposed to love the Lord, and then we fail miserably. The Bible says if we break one of the commandments it's as if we broke all of them. Again, my John Corson suggests that just like when the law was given, the earth shook. Now the earth is shaking again. If it was shaking the first time to shake people up, now it's shaking the second time to shake the people loose. Because the dead are going to come back to life. People are going to be shaken loose. Uh, we are free. Our debt is paid. The veil is torn. The dead are going to come back to life. And guess what? A select group of saints do exactly that in verses 52 and 53. That says, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many on this last week on my radio program I uh, got this question the question was well what does this mean and I said listen to my sermon on Sunday (laughs) I know it's a cheating a little bit but I did give a little brief preview. The tombs open in part because the death of Jesus is going to conquer death. I want you to note several important things about the passage. The events of verses 52 and 53 seem to occur, look, note, after his resurrection in verse 53. Did the massive earthquake in verse 51 cause the graves to open it would appear so but the bodies only come to life after the resurrection of Jesus why is that important because according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20 but now Jesus that is Christ but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first Fruits of those who have fallen asleep, unquote. The resurrection of Jesus is a down payment for the future resurrections. And there's a picture that's given to us in Leviticus chapter 23, verses nine through 14. Some of you are familiar with that passage, but in Leviticus, there is this picture of the sheaf offering or the wave offering. And it's eight days after where uh, the, 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 the sheaf is given and it's waved as, as, as a part of a sign, if you will, of life. So, so what's the point? The resurrection of Jesus is a down payment for future resurrections. It's a picture of your resurrection and my resurrection. Remember when Jesus said in John chapter 11, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he that believeth in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. I know that some of you struggle. You have, like me, a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister who have died. Some of you tragically have children who have died. You have been living in a world where death has visited you. And as you've been visited by death, you ask and answer the question. I wonder what's going to happen when I die. I wonder if it really is just the termination of life. I wonder if the brain activity is going to cease, the heart is going to stop pumping and whatever constitutes you is going to cease to exist. What happens when a person dies? You live in a world where people are asking this question every single day. They get terminate they get diagnosed with terminal cancer or an inoperable brain tumor and then they go through those gymnastics that happen whenever a person is faced with their own mortality it would appear that prior to the resurrection of Jesus people went to one of two places according to the Bible there is a place of the There was a place for the righteous dead and there was a place for the unrighteous dead. Jesus talks about it in the story of Lazarus. You'll remember how he talks about a man who was poor and he begged uh, for the crumbs uh, that fell from the table of a rich man. And the Bible says that this man named Lazarus dies and he is... Brought to the place of the righteous dead, or the place called Abraham's bosom, that the rich man also dies and he goes to a different place, a place of the unrighteous dead. Paul talks a little bit about it and hints at it. Peter hints a little bit about it. When Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, that Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison, John quotes Jesus in Revelation 1.18, where it says, "'I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, amen.'" I have the keys of hell and death. Paul adds in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, but he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. Some have suggested that 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 means that Jesus left heaven and came to the earth. Some have suggested that Jesus goes to the place of the dead I'm going to suggest to you that there seems to be good evidence that Jesus goes to the place of the dead, but it isn't the unrighteous dead. It isn't the place where some of our friends say that Jesus went to hell and he poured out his wormy little spirit and that demons were running rampant and that Jesus stole the keys of death and hell from Satan and that he emptied out hell. I don't suspect that that's what happened. I suspect that Jesus went to the place of the righteous dead and he proclaimed the truth that all of them believed who were in the place of the righteous dead. In the place of Abraham's bosom, he goes to the place where Abraham was promised that if he would give his son, his only son, on Mount Moriah in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham in his mind believed that he would bring his son back to life. And that when God spared his son Isaac, Abraham in his mind by faith believed that God himself would provide a sacrifice, which is exactly what he says in Genesis chapter 22. People have been saved in every generation exactly the same way, by grace, through faith. The testimony of the scripture is that Jesus has led captivity captive. He has dealt with the problem of sin. He has dealt with the problem of death. He has dealt with the problem of hell, and by hell... I mean the grave, I mean the portal whereby the living go somewhere else. You see, in the ancient world, hell was used in a number of different ways, but it was primarily used to describe the portal whereby you go from one existence into another existence. We do it in our own culture. If you have a loved one who's died and you say they've passed on, You understand that they're not here, but the expression passed on doesn't tell you where they went. And so, Jesus conquers the enemies of humanity. Setting human beings free so that Jesus is free to exercise complete control over sin and over death and over the grave and to bring people back to life so that you can live in his presence forever. We're flesh and blood. We will live and die unless the Lord appears first in a glorious rapture Jesus becomes human. The writer of Hebrews explains it this way in Hebrews 2.14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood. That means we're human. He himself likewise shared the same. Jesus became human. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. The writer of Hebrews spells it out. The soul that sins, it shall surely die. The wages of sin, according to the book of Romans, is death. And he who had the power over death and released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know people exactly like that. Who live their life in awful, mind-numbing Fear that they're going to die. I saw an amazing documentary this last week called Immortals. It was a, a documentary about people who are cryogenically frozen. In the state of Arizona, they have a cryogenic research center where they take people and they cut off their head and then they freeze it in a cryogenic chamber they'll take their body and freeze it in a cryogenic chamber and i'm thinking to myself look if you've cut that person's head off they're pretty much dead <laughs> we're not talking about the recovery of a disease we're talking they are dead and in the course of this documentary The person asked them, how much does it cost? Well, it costs $200,000 to freeze your head and $300,000 to freeze your body. See, you guys are going like this. You're shaking your head. Can you imagine spending a half a million dollars? the, the, The person literally asked the person who operated the cryogenic center, are you afraid to die? And her look was shocking, even terrifying because she gave it away. She was terrified of dying. But then a a certain rebellion rose up in her face and in her eyes. And she said, sure, I'm afraid to die, but not for the reasons that you might think, because I think that death is boring. And then she said, I'd rather say that I'm protesting death I'm protesting death. She's frozen her husband. She's frozen her family members. She's frozen her cat. She's frozen her dog. In the hopes that one day science will provide a cure. That somehow you can reconstitute the person from the DNA that lies in the cryogenic chamber. People say that you're weird. (laughs) Because you're willing to believe when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believeth in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. You hold on. You hold on to the promise. But you have something that those cryogenic people never had. You have a Savior who's come back to life. You have a Savior who has risen from the dead and made this amazing Promise, Ambrose Bierce, a famous journalist from, the past, from two centuries past, writer and committed agnostic, he wrote this. He, he had a, a dictionary, die, period, to stop sinning suddenly. <laughs> no, no, this, this is great coming from an unbeliever and an agnostic. His definition of death was, hey, guess what? You don't sin anymore. And I think that that's right. He's cheating. He's taking that from Paul the Apostle in the book of Romans. The dead don't sin. Martin Luther famously said, quote, every man must do things alone. He must do two things alone. He must do his own believing, and he must do his own dying. No one's going to believe for you. And there's going to come a time When you will draw your last breath. According to the text, the bodies of these saints arise and they show themselves alive in the holy city of Jerusalem. That's what the holy city is, by the way. I think you knew that. There's a reason why it's called the holy city. It's the city that God separated, set apart in order to reveal himself and to testify to the world concerning the reality of who he is. The big question when it says they appeared to many, can you imagine after the resurrection of Jesus, the tombs have been shaken, the bodies come back to life, they show up. How bizarre is that? The big question is, is this a resuscitation or a resurrection? By resuscitation, I mean this. You'll remember in John's gospel when Jesus says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. Was Lazarus resurrected from the dead? Yes, in one sense he was resurrected, but in a more precise sense, he's resuscitated. In what sense? His body, his living human body is going to go into the future and he is going to die again. Is this a resuscitation or is this a true resurrection? Are these saints with glorified bodies who will never die again? I'm going to suggest to you that I don't know the answer to that question because the text doesn't tell me. But if I were to guess, my guess would be that this is a resurrection from the dead. Because had this been a resuscitation, I suspect that we would have heard a lot more about the incidents. As people are walking around going, dude, you used to be dead. I suspect that they went into heaven with Jesus Only Matthew records this extraordinary event. Modern scholars are in favor of omitting the whole thing in verses 52 and 53, calling into question the content. There are modern scholars who say, look, whatever this means, it can't mean that dead people come back. It sounds like the zombie apocalypse. My response? There's no evidence to support their omission. My response would be, The same manuscript evidence exists for all the rest of Matthew chapter 27 and all the rest of Matthew chapter 28. The same manuscript exists for the virgin birth of Jesus, for the miracles of Jesus, for the death of Jesus, for the resurrection of Jesus. Why would we want to just simply cut this particular portion out of our Bible? I think it's because for some people it's awkward and troublesome. But guess what? We know that there are caves and tombs aplenty around Jerusalem. And Matthew uses the term very precisely, saints. He says these are saints. I think there's a reason why he calls these people saints. These are people who have been made holy through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, I grew up in a religious tradition where a saint was someone who was spectacularly holy, whose life was accompanied by miracles. But the the word is never used that way in the New Testament. It's always used in the way of people who through faith in Jesus have come to know him and love him. Jesus is victorious over, over death. So, here's what we know. We have access to God through Jesus. The power of death is broken through Jesus. The Life Application Bible says, quote, The death and resurrection of Jesus initiates and inaugurates a new covenant, the new age of salvation, and the beginning of the last days, unquote. And that's exactly right. The last days begin. The moment that Jesus ends, he breathes his last breath. He's going to be placed in a tomb and he's going to come back to life. And then there's a select group of witnesses who were standing by. Look what it says in verse 54. So So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly saying, truly this was the son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from the Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. Among them, whom were among whom were Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the and the mother of Zebedee's sons so the death of Jesus affects the earth it affects the curtain it affects the dead but it also affects the living when it says the centurion remember this is the person in charge of the execution this is the person who has authority over a hundred men. It says he feared greatly. You can read terrified. Now, you have to understand something, that this Roman soldier and all of these Roman soldiers were men of war, familiar with death. It might mean that they became aware of their sin, When it says, and they feared greatly, in what sense? In the sense that they began to understand something. They had been to many a crucifixion, but they had never been to a crucifixion where God blotted out the sun, where the things that were said around the cross, where there is a conversion by a man standing next to Jesus, where Jesus has this triumphant cry. So, what are we to make of this of this centurion's statement? Is is he aware of his sin? Is he is it truly suggesting? Conviction and, and genuine faith. Some of you may have been familiar with the, the movie The Greatest Story Ever Told. I can't remember which one it is, but, but it's the one that features John Wayne as the centurion. And in that movie, John Wayne goes, truly this was the son of God. And he smiles. And you go, I don't think that that captures actually the moment. If I were going to recast the movie, I think I would have. Who's the guy who played in Gladiator? Yeah, I would have Robert. I would have Russell Crowe wetting his pants. (laughs) Then you get the picture. Russell Crowe, strong man, powerful man, man used to protecting people and himself. He's terrified. He's terrified. We should note a couple of things. He's not alone. There are people with him. They're guarding Jesus. Mark's gospel, chapter 15, says the centurion makes the statement. But again, he's leaving the impression with us both in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel that everyone who are close to Jesus in the execution process have come to the same conclusion. There's something wrong terrifying, disturbing that's happened. And if this is genuine faith, if it is genuine faith, if it is that the centurion and the soldiers have some sort of genuine conversion experience, it's speaking about the power of the cross. And now all of a sudden we begin to understand when Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. It is the powerful picture of the cross that in invites people to consider what has happened and what Jesus has done. Clearly, the centurion is a pagan. G. Campbell Morgan writes, quote, nobody who has truly seen the cross of Christ can ever speak of hopeless cases, unquote. And there might be some hopeless cases in your life. A husband or a wife or a child, a friend or a family member, who you keep telling them the gospel over and over and over again, but all of a sudden now they hear this about the cross. And they begin to wear down as they begin to consider exactly what's happened Jesus has predicted his death. He's arranged his death. He's instituted his own death in such a way that it had to have been voluntary. The sinless life of Jesus is confirmed by his closest friends, by the apostles, by his worst enemies, even if this only means... Whoever this person is and whatever this person has done, this person is dying like no one I have ever seen die, surrounded by miraculous circumstances like I have never seen before. They see the earthquake. They see what's happened. I'm certain that the centurion, like everybody else, is going to be aware of the empty tomb supernatural darkness, verse 45, mysterious loud cry, verses 46 through 49, triumphant shout, yielding up a spirit, verse 50, the torn curtain, verse 51, the resurrection of the saints in verses 52 and 53. This isn't the soldier's first crucifixion, but it had to be the most bizarre. The magnetic, supernatural, powerful message of the cross. Beckoning, drawing, inviting. The women who are there, look what it says. They followed Jesus from the Galilee. The women demonstrate love and courage when so many people have opted for cowardice. And it would appear that some of the women were looking on from a distance. Others were close by. How do we know that? From John chapter 19 verse 25. Do you remember? It says now there stood by the cross of Jesus. His mother. His mother's sister. Mary the wife of Clopas. And Mary Magdalene. I think that there were two kinds of women who were there that day. Those that could only look at the suffering from a distance and those who could look up close. Mothers are remarkable human beings. Mothers are those who will get down and dirty when it comes to their children. And no matter how painful, no matter how awkward, no matter how difficult the suffering is. We live in a world where people can look from a distance and where people can look up close. Whatever else we make from this passage, neither can bear to leave him alone. Even when we don't know all of the answers, even when we don't know What to do. There are those who will see Jesus and they'll notice his sufferings from a distance. And then there are those who will notice up close. Fear is powerful, but love is even more powerful. This is the practical ministry of love in the presence of unspeakable evil. Human beings have done their worst against Jesus and still the women remain close by. A secret disciple is going to come forward and beg for his body in verses 57 through 60 because apparently not one apostle will leave their hiding place, perhaps with the exception of John. And no one will help bury him. But often the most choice flower will bloom in the night and in the darkness and in the cold. And it is in the darkness and in the cold that we discover who really loves us and who really doesn't. It's the people who are willing to look at our pain up close. And even those who may not know exactly how to deal with our pain. They want to get close. The death of Jesus must have been overwhelmingly mysterious to them. Imagine, they don't understand. They don't understand. Darkness and not understanding is often our point of view. And so we ask God, Lord, could you please help me understand what I'm seeing? The women have to ask and answer a question. What's going on here? Why is he dying? Why is he dying? He is the most gracious, wonderful person that I've ever known. And you'll remember from last week, we've already talked about Mary Magdalene, who was delivered from seven demons in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. She doesn't know everything about everything, but she must know that something has gone terribly wrong. There's another Mary, the, the wife of Clopas from John chapter 19, verse 25, which is actually a variant of the name Alpheus, which means that she's the mother of the apostle known as James the Less from Mark chapter 15, verse 40. And the mother of Zebedee's sons are James and Mark. Her name is Salome. You can find that in Mark chapter 15, verse 40. But the tear in the temple means that we have access to God through Jesus. The terrifying earthquake and the split rocks means that Satan's control over the earth and its destiny, and Satan's control over you and your ultimate destiny, will be absolutely thwarted. That's why I can stand beside every single grave and say with complete confidence. This person's coming back to life. Jesus said so. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And in the event that I happen to outlive you, and for whatever reason your family decides to let me participate in your burial, I'm going to say it about each and every one of you, unless you tell me different. Don't say that. (laughs) The tomb's open the dead rise. No wonder John Bunyan said that, quote, death is but a passage out of a prison and into a palace. James Dobson, who I don't quote often, but who got it exactly right this time, said, quote, The final heartbeat for the Christian is not the mysterious conclusion to a meaningless existence. It is rather the grand beginning of a life that will never end. If I could say it better, I'd try. But that's exactly right. Yes, we find ourselves back at this moment just for a moment. Well, whether you like it or not, guess what? You're going to get a lot more resurrection stories way past Easter. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this time. Lord, we pray for that person who's lived in unbelievable unmistakable fear. Lord, I pray that they would come to grips. That they would understand that apart from Jesus, they can't have relationship and they can't have fellowship with God. They may think that they can go to the golf course and visit with Jesus and they can find God in the moon and the stars up above But Lord, we know that there's no access to you apart from Jesus. And so again, it is in the name of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus and because of the testimony of Jesus and the promise of Jesus that we once again say thank you, Lord, for saving us, for giving us a promise concerning our death and the reality that one day we'll come back to life. In Jesus' name.